Well, Chairman Peter, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the invitation to come here. I've spoken to a number of the branches of the society. First time I've been here in the headquarters, and it's a privilege to do so. A number of familiar faces out there amongst the gathering, mostly, of course, uh, Bona Jet enthusiasts. And for those that don't understand that, that's the people who were in the Harrier Mafia over the years. Maybe it's a term that most of you will know. Uh, this really is the RAF's Harrier first generation. I'm not other than just a brief couple of slides at the back end talking about the GR579 family. More of that and on. What I want to do is to go through the gestation of the program. Now, it may be something that Sir Donald covered earlier, but I did discuss this with him a couple of months ago, and we didn't think there's any overlap. Uh, we talk about the Government Defence Review of, eight, of 57, which in many ways was a disaster. In many other ways, there were some really bright lights in there which haven't been fully recognised over the years. Hawker's response to the challenge, and then the aircraft development of the 1127 family. Then the Government Defence Review of 65, which again put uh, uh, a lever into the cogs and jammed it in many ways, but it led to the development of the airplane that we knew and loved all these years. Then I'll talk about the Harrier concepts of operation in the Cold War. The training, support, the capability enhancements, and finally, the aftermath. The Defence Review of 57 declared all missile offence and defence. There were going to be no manned aircraft beyond the Lightning and the Canberra replacement, which of course became TSR-2. The disbandment of something like 20 frontline fighter squads. I was going through Cranwell's a flight cadet on vampires at the time, and the morale of the instructors just fell off a cliff because they saw there was going to be no jobs to go to. We'd cut down to just 10 hunter squadrons in the UK and four in Germany, and that seemed to be the sum total of uh, potential fighter jobs. The disbandment of the RF auxiliary units, uh, again, a big money-saving measure, and personally, I think, probably a very good decision, although to the volunteers and the reservists at the time, not so. The proposed end of national service, of course, meant that there was no real role for the auxiliaries. And finally, a, a major aspect of that defence review was the restructuring of the British aviation industry, and that, of course, led to its own problems. Now, Hawker in 1957 were well entrenched on what they saw as the Hunter replacement, a much bigger aeroplane, much more capable. But that was, of course, cancelled, not actually in 57. Hawkers maintained a personal commitment to the aeroplane with a certain amount of encouragement from the MOD, but the programme was finally cancelled in 58. And the technology they were putting into that programme, and about 75% of that aeroplane was complete, I understand there's bits still at Cranfield, they used to be part of their submission to the uh, TSR-2, OR-339, the P-1129, a different aeroplane altogether to 1121, but uh, I'm not going to debate much more of that. It just meant that hawkers, beyond spare support for Seahawks and hunters, had nothing in the future programs, and therefore something had to be done. Now, coincidental with all this, Vibol, Michel Vibol in France, had come up with a concept for this machine, which uh, had tiny little wings, but ostensibly was going to be able to fly in the hover, and they had swiveling nozzles. Now, both Ralph Hooper and Gordon Lewis, the Ralph Hooper at Hawkers and Gordon Lewis at Rolls-Royce, or what was then Bristol, saw 
that there was potential here. And between them, they came up with several designs. The, this ungainly looking machine didn't fortunately get beyond the, the drawing board. But now we're beginning to look at an aircraft that is similar to the Harrier. The engine has got uh, four nozzles. It's got the cold nozzles from the fan and the hot nozzles after engine combustion, of course, or fuel combustion. And the airplane on the top right is ostensibly what the P1127 is going to look like. The heart of the Harrier, and I use this as a, from George Dow's book, excellent book on the Pegasus, which he described as the heart of the Harrier, and no one will dispute that. There is the engine, there is the controls in the cockpit, and as the Harrier aficionados will know, there's only this one lever, and that puts the thrust where you need it. Now, the P-127 first flew, of course, in 1960, October the 21st. That's uh, Trafalgar Day, I believe, for the Navy enthusiasts. And uh, more of that and on. But uh, the program that the company was being encouraged to pursue was to the OR-356, which was the British input to what was the NBMR-3, NATO Basic Military Requirement 3. Now, the Harrier wasn't going to do the job. It had to be supersonic. It was a program that the MOD said should be joint between the Navy and the RAF. The Navy was never fully on board. It was a single engine. They didn't want a single engine. They wanted a twin-engined aircraft. There was even a plot to put two reheated spays with cold nozzles into the 1154 design to meet AW406. It uh, never really ran on the test beds, as far as I know, but the BS100 in the middle there, which is positioned inverted, is now in the Fleet Air Arm Museum at Yeovilton. Uh, quite why, I'm not sure, because the Fleet Air Arm Museum is where successful Navy projects went, and the Navy was really behind the cancellation of the 1154 because they persuaded the MOD quite reasonably under their position that they wanted phantoms instead. And of course, the 65 Defence Review put the phantom into the Royal Air Force as well. Over in France, with the huge support from Rolls-Royce up in Derby, of course, we're pursuing an alternative solution. The eight lift engine, one thrust engine, Balzac, which was a modified Mirage 3A, but the aircraft was going to form the basis as a test bed which to become the Mirage 3V. And the sole surviving example of that is in the Le Bourget Museum even to this day. And a huge airplane it is, with most of the fuselage taken up with engines. Which was good for Rolls-Royce, of course, had the program gone <laughs> ahead. Now, this is the P-1127 evolution, very quickly, the 1127, the Kestrel, which I'll describe very briefly because I know Sir Donald covered this a couple of years ago. Harrier GR1, Sea Harrier, Harrier GR79, and of course, Sea Harrier FA2. Um, I'm not going to dwell on Sea Harrier other than to mention them in passing here. What I want to talk about is how the capability that we had became a concept of operations. Now, the tripartite evaluation squadron at West Raynham in 65 was an immensely successful project. Note, there were no US Marine Corps pilots in that program. And yet, today, the Marines are the real driving force behind what is left of the Harrier today. But it did confirm the viability of dispersed concepts of operation. And this is what the RAF pursued. The first Harrier flew on the 31st of August, 1966. It was called the P-1127 Brackets RAF, but that name appeared, or the Harrier appeared the uh, following year. But I described it here as a capability 
searching for a concept of operations. There was huge uh, separations in the arguments in the MOD in the mid-60s. Mac 2 was the magic figure that the Lightning could get to, so why shouldn't a successor or a complementary aircraft to the Lightning be able to fly at Mac 2 as well? Um, the, the answer to that is uncertainty within the MOD and lobbies pushing one or the other case. And it's to the great credit of those who had faith in Stovall that the Harrier came out of the 1965 Defence Review, which of course had happened at the same time as the Kestrel Tripartite Squadron was working at West Raynham. In the spring of 65, 60 P1127 brackets RAF had been given to hawkers, I suppose, as a certain amount of SOP because of the loss of the 1154. But that was key to the start of the Harrier as we know it today. Now, what was it going to be used for? And this was part of the arguments within the MOD. It wasn't going to be a multi-role fighter, which the 1154 was going to be. It had to fulfill a role which somebody somewhere in the British military needed. And the, of course, the army needed an airplane that could provide close air support or offensive air support covering the three traditional titles there, close air support, air interdiction, that's hitting the enemy a bit behind the front line, and of course providing tactical air reconnaissance. All the other roles are self-explanatory. So the Harrier is that red bit in the middle. The Cold War main bases that were selected was Wittering, of course, for the first uh, aircraft, that's the OCU plus number one squadron, and over in Germany at Wildenrath there were three squadrons, by 1972, the third squadron had been formed. So basically it was one squadron per year were created. The Harriers from Wildenrath moved forward to Goodersloe in 1976-77. It put them much closer to the front line. It gave the Phantom, who was replacing the, the Lightning in Germany, the role back at Wildenrath. So there was a sensible swap there. The NATO central region main bases are all shown here on the slide. Everybody knew where they were. It was published in public access documents, runway lengths, positions, Latin long. So the Soviets knew exactly where they all were. So how do you protect aircraft? And the two options are to reduce, uh, to reduce the vulnerability by building your citadel or disappearing away from the mains. That was the way that the helicopters operated, obviously. Operate elsewhere, and both of these had their proponents. Vast amounts of money were spent on concrete in the hardened aircraft shelters, which I'll touch on briefly in a moment. Uh, and not a lot of money was spent on the Harrier, which meant the Harrier was seen to be scrubbing along, looking for support, looking for money, which made it unpopular in the MOD. Now, this is the typical NATO airfield, hardened in the 1970s. The whole of the, uh, the Western part of Germany was covered in these airfields, all the same, about 8,500 foot long main runway, twin parallel taxiways, but the nice thing about it was these revetments up in the corner, these, these have been evaluated as the way to, to go to protect aircraft, to keep them away from big parking areas, so all of these airfields had something like four off to the side somewhere with revetments, and uh, this provided an element of protection. Obviously, this was going to be enhanced in the early 1970s when the hardened program came about. And you can see down here an element of uh, one group of hazards, uh, a command center here, which is like a has, but that controlled the, uh, the force on the day. And of course, this is what a, a has looked up 
closely. Um, meter thick walls and good for anything but a direct hit. The advent of the laser guided bomb made them fat targets as we proved in the first Gulf War of course. So that concept is now, you could say, obsolete. The rapid runway repair exercises we did was supposed to be uh, two bombs per two hours repair, the ability of the Royal Engineers, which were detached, of course, to support us, which is not a lot when you consider what the airfield was going to be hit by, and I'll come on to that in a moment. The other aspect of dispersed basing, of course, was one squadron based at Wittering, whose role was to leave Wittering and go elsewhere. And the bases that they exercised regularly in is Tromso and Bardufoss in northern Norway and Vandel in Denmark. And they periodically left Wittering to do just that. The real estate up in Tromso, just a tad different to the real estate that we flew over in Germany, but equally attractive in many ways. So one squadron's role is expeditionary. They had nine pre-surveyed sites from northern Norway all the way around to Turkey. The southern options through the Mediterranean were never exercised. It was all done within the European mainland. The aircraft were camouflaged for uh, winter operation in the north. And of course, all of one squadron was air refuel capable. In other words, the probes were there, not necessarily fitted because the probe and the GR3 was a, an ungainly device, but it did allow the aircraft to be deployed and, of course, that all came to fruition many years later. Operations in Vandel as a typical Harrier hide, basically cam netting over poles. And from the air, very difficult to see, as even those of us trying to find our way back into a site where we knew where it was <laughs> had difficulty. And sometimes it was a question of, uh, over here, turn around, turn around, on the nose now. Oh, yes. And they'd drift across and finally come to land. But the NATO northern region, the Norwegian deployment, you can see, uh, quite exciting. I was never there myself, um, whether I regret it or not. I don't do cold these days, but uh, these are some rather attractive shots of Harriers in the, the northern region. But in the central region, those of us in Germany, which is the largest part of uh, the RAS Harrier Force, of course, uh, moved up to Goodersloe, and Goodersloe had two groups of hazards, one there and one down here, and some of us in the audience have flown from both. The runway there was a bit shorter than the, uh, the, the standard NATO down at uh, the clutch bases for various reasons, because it's an old Luftwaffe base and uh, a lovely place it was to serve, as I'm sure some of the audience will uh, uh, agree with me on that. But the Goodersloe base concept, this was a, a theoretical attack by four flights of four fencers. There was a bit more than two bombs in two hours to be repaired there. So we didn't really want to stay on base. You could put three Harriers in a has, so there was an element of protection against everything other than a direct hit. But what we preferred to do was to get off base in an operation called Warlock, an abbreviation of war locations, where we would go forward into six pre-surveyed field sites with six step-up sites also surveyed, and I know that some members of the audience have been out there pacing the ground on German public roads in civilian clothes, trying to be uh, sort of invisible to the local eyes because we were surveying together with our army sapper colleagues and our army communications colleagues, likely operational sites. There was a small cell in the headquarters in operations wing who were responsible for finding these sites clandestinely 
coming back, reporting, and we would go out and survey them for potential use as operational sites. And this is typical of what a site would have been. In factories, industrial estates, or supermarkets, we needed to know the strip criteria. The length was easy. You could measure that off the Ordnance Survey map. But many of us have spent time in civilian clothes, trying to be kind of obtrusive, pacing the width to make sure it met the criteria, which was something over 35 feet wide. We needed natural and man-made cover, and we needed to gain access to the taxi. And you can see here the, uh, the drop-down from this particular car park onto the main road, because the Harrier outriggers particularly didn't like the six-inch drop, or whatever it is in metres, centimetres. Um, we needed, obviously, road access for the logistics support, which was a very heavy demand on wheel support, and was one of the things that you might consider was vulnerable for the Harrier force in the field. We also needed to have the, the six flying sites fairly close to the forward wing operation centre for not only command and control, but to be able to meet um, the criteria for radio communications. Now, the radio communications, for its time, was analogue, digital, secure speech. You pick the phone up and dial a number, and it was secure. There was no funny tones behind it. The Bruin system was outstanding, and it gave us the ability to communicate readily in the field. Now, the routine training at Goodislow, we didn't have the old access to the, the hazards and the revetments that they had down at Wildenrath, so we had to uh, determine a way of training on base at Goodislow, and we created this strip here, Difficult to see perhaps from the back, but it's about uh, 1,500 feet long. It's about 40 feet wide, parallel to the main runway, with access up here and down here. The reason for that was to give youngsters, straight out of the OCU, the regular ability to train off a road that was just about the same width as that which would be experienced in war. On exercise, clearly we couldn't go launching into German public roads uh, on a regular basis. We used grass fields, which of course for the Harrier, which could transit grass up to a particular California bearing ratio, that meant it was hard enough to taxi over. And so we'd fly off the grass. There's some pretty spectacular shots there that uh, one or two will be familiar with. This one here is uh, recognizing that the field is a little bit soggy, therefore we must do something about it. Down went aluminium planking, again about 35 feet wide and just sufficiently long to enable us to fly off in the training fix. Uh, square, rec or square pad here for landing and of course taxiways into the hides down here. Now it, they look a bit uh, obtrusive because they're stuck out from the side of a wood. It, this was for exercise purposes. I mean, you couldn't go demolishing German woods just because you wanted to do an exercise. We'd use um, disused farms. This particular one was about 25 miles south of Goodislaw and was well used. Uh, we were restricted occasionally to fly off German public roads. If there was work going to be done on the roads, then we could get a foot in early in the door and say, excuse me, we'd like to fly off uh, this bit of road before it gets resurfaced, and we'd exercise that. So a few exercises, and names like Oak Stroll and Hazel Flute, etc., will be familiar to many of us. The bottom right picture here is a lovely picture describing just what it is. Actually, it's a painting. It's the Four Squadron Christmas card way back in the 1970s. But it does give the atmosphere of Harriers launching off these tiny little runways to the... the 
tornado men of today and the phantom and buccaneer men of yesterday, this is impossible to fly off, but we did, and we did it very successfully. To exercise off more representative surfaces, we had large chunks of the Senelaga training area just north of uh, Paderborn. And the Senelaga training area was our ambition, and uh, perhaps Roger Galt could add a little bit to this. We worked very hard to get the army to work with us on creating a fighting in built-up areas village where the road out of it was 1,500 feet long and 35 feet wide, and we could use the buildings for hides, but I'm not sure that it ever came to anything. But we did have some strips built in the Senelaga training area, which meant that we weren't going to be conditioned by the problems we faced in taxiing a harrier over grass. This was the best of the harrier sites. Uh, we wrecked this in uh, the, about January uh, 74 with Sir Paddy Hine, who was then force commander, and this was a part of what was the Senelaga perimeter tank road. In other words, pretty thick concrete to withstand the 70 tons of uh, metal charging over it. The site is laid out with a vertical, sorry about that, wrong button. This is the vertical landing pad, that's the hides area, and that's the strip. And the strip was about 1,800 feet long with trees at the end. And it was a, an ideal way of training youngsters to have confidence in their aeroplane and vectored thrust to get them out of there with a full weapons load. And because it was a hard surface, you could train with weapons because it was inside the Senlaga training area. So you get airborne from there, go and launch them at some range somewhere and come back, feeling that we'd actually done the job properly. How do we get about? Well, the analog inertial navigation and attack system, INAS, as it was colloquially known, difficult to service. When it worked, it worked very well. About a mile in an hour's flight was good, uh, but it did also provide not only navigation, but weapon aiming. And of course, the ballistics for the various weapons could be fed into this analog system, which I never did understand how it worked, but perhaps some of the old analog men might be able to explain it to me. But it worked, it did, and uh, it gave us the ability to aim and launch weapons reasonably successfully. The primary weapons configuration was the BL-755 cluster bomb, and you could put five on the standard GR-3 uh, with the two guns, each of which <coughs> held 120 rounds of 30 millimeter ammunition. And that was a successful operation. Uh, obviously, the airplane didn't have particularly long legs, but that could do the business. We could deploy with dummy BL-755s for uh, weapons training in the, uh, in the exercises, and the ground crew had lots of practice in loading and unloading these things. In the air, the BL-755, for those who don't know it, is now banned today because it's seen to be hazardous to health. Well, of course it is, because it's designed to, <laughs> designed to kill people and knock out tanks. The Harrier, shown here, dropping four, each bomb contains 147 bomblets, and each bomblet casing, and it's the nasty bit here, is a hollow charge warhead that will go through 13 inches of steel armor, and therefore was going to penetrate the glassy plates of any of the Soviet's armor at the time. But the body containing the hollow charge was scored such that when the hollow charge went off, 1,000 tiny little pieces of fragments went out in a cloud. And that is what is hazardous to health because not all of the bomblets, of course, go off when it hits the ground or hits the target. 
Some of them are unexploded, and they are extremely hazardous to civilians. And of course, in the sort of war that the service is operating in today, not a good idea. Uh, the public relations disaster of one of these things going off is bad. But it did perform uh, operationally for us, and I'll come on to that in a moment. The alternative weapons load, and uh, I guess probably to modern Harrier men, is still used, uh, the rocket launchers. We had the SNEB rocket, the 68-millimeter French pod. Uh, we still have the two 30-millimeter Aidens. And although each rocket launcher only carried 18 rockets, therefore you've got a total of 72 warheads as against what you had with the BL-755. That's one half of a BL-755 in terms of warhead. But of course it's aimed and delivered slightly differently to the BL-755, which demanded a straight level pass over the target at something between 180 and 250 feet. We also carried a recce pod on the center line. The recce pod had inertial data fed in from the platform to tell it where it was so that the photographic interpreters could examine the film, know where we were if the pilot didn't. And that didn't very happen often. We tended to know where we were while we were taking the film. But if we didn't, the data conversion unit in the pod would give us what the PIs needed. And you can see on the diagram, it's horizon to horizon cover. Now, each Harrier had a fixed camera in the nose, which enabled it to take pictures of anything it wanted to. But uh, it was used, obviously, as a sort of backup recce role. But the, the main fit was the pod on the center line, which uh, those of us on four squadron carried it pretty well all the time. We were seen to be the recce, quote, experts, unquote. When we came back to the pad, it was all landings from the hover. Now, the thinking here was that the aircraft would get airborne on what was termed the short takeoff. That is, a combination of wing lift and vectored engine thrust would get us off the ground. And you could get off the ground with huge loads, and I'll describe a bit of that in a moment. But when you had got airborne and you burned off the fuel and you had fired the weapons, you would come back light. But who says you fire your weapons? And this was a problem much later on with the second generation Harry. It didn't have enough thrust to bring back expensive weapons. And so this is the problem that we potentially could face, although it wasn't regarded as a major problem at the time because the engine were upgraded during my first tour there so that we could uh, fly the aircraft with lots of spare performance. Um, in the field, deployed logistics support was absolutely vital to keep us going. Fuel, weapons, and support equipment. An engine change was a major challenge in the field because obviously full power engine runs have to be done on tie down, and the engineers who supported us in the field, absolute gold dust. Without them, we would not have survived. Bulk fuel supply was shipped in. The tanks, which are shown in buns at the upper slide there, are a bit, uh, a bit visible, but by the time you'd cabbed it up and the chaps are working under the trees, then it wasn't easy to see from the air, and many other NATO recce aircraft were tasked to find us in a specific area of about 30 miles by 30 miles, and very often they came back with nothing to report. Such was the way we were camouflaged in the field and how we operated. Command and control was from basically four vehicles, known as the Marshall cabins, and uh, this was from Marshalls of Cambridge. They were NBC-proof, in other words, filtered, they weren't NBC proof for uh, any form of weapons. Um, 
with bits because they were just tin boxes. But they did provide us a filtered environment, and although we wore NBC kit in them, the uh, idea was that they would give us a degree of protection against uh, nuclear fallout and biological conditions. We had them split into four option tasking, intelligence, engineering logistics, and the ground liaison officer, of course, was key to part of the briefing business. Deployed field support, we had our own people, of course, uh, in blue, and the army in red. The Bruin Secure Speech comms I described earlier as being absolutely vital for tasking and for intelligence gathering. And of course, the strip maintenance by the Royal Engineers was vital because uh, without the strip on some of the muddy sites, then we were going to be stuck there until uh, we could get our way out. I've described this as the ubiquitous 12 by 12 tent because most of you ex-servicemen certainly will know this. But uh, in the open, it's pretty evident what it is, but uh, cammed up, it's quite discreet. And you could, of course, cam up the vehicles here as well, so that from the air, these were genuinely very difficult to find. The Harrier GR3, therefore, by the time I left my first tour in 75, had bedded down and was in its element. And uh, it was something which I felt very strongly about when I went back to the MOD. My job in the MOD was just the Harrier desk. But I saw that as having three main issues from my personal standpoint, and that was to sustain the force. Because when I got back to the MOD in 75, the policy was to waste the Harrier force by the mid-80s and to buy 24 new Jaguars to provide more offensive support capability for the Royal Air Force. Now, that, to me, was anathema. A, the Jaguar was an airplane of very little consequence to me personally, and that's because I'd got a lot of background experience on other aircraft that did the job far better. The Jaguar, however, was seen to be um, easier to maintain. The HAZ infrastructure was in place, therefore it was the cheaper option. But it didn't give us the capability that we needed in my book. So I argued the case for reversing this policy. And by 1977, uh, the air planners had listened to the arguments from those of us who believed in the Harrier and changed the policy to be 24 new Harriers and to allow the Jaguar force to waste by the mid-90s. Of course, the, the Harrier force and the Jaguar force wasting is a joke because it didn't happen. However, what did happen was that there were more Harriers ordered in 77, which were delivered around the 81 timescale, and that is significant also. Part of my briefing in the MOD was that quote at the bottom there, which is as vital it is today as it was then. It describes the fact that the Harrier is limited in its capability because it was a first-generation airplane, but it could do things that nothing else could do, and therefore we needed to follow it. And that helped in the case to buy 24 new Harriers rather than the Jaguar. But also, in promoting its concept of operations with more airplanes, I was keen to enhance the capability of the airplane. Now, the Harrier has to have its wing off to get the engine out. And it seemed to me that if you took the wing off, take the engine out, put the engine back in, you could put a new wing on that would do things better. And this was taken up by my pals down at Hawker, John Fozard and Robin Balmer together, saw merit in this scheme. And the reason why we were asking for these major modifications was that in 1977, or 76-77, there was no money available for a new aircraft other than what was called AST-403, which became AST-414, which became the Typhoon. 
But in 77, there was money available to modify. There was no limit put on that amount to modify the aircraft. So we came up with a scheme to re-wing the existing Harrier force, particularly the 24 new aircraft that were on order. That was uh, taken seriously by the MOD, and in due course, I'll describe what happened. But meantime, to reinforce the case for the Harrier, along comes the problem in Belize, or British Honduras as it used to be. Guatemala was threatening to take over Belize, and the only combat aircraft you could put in there was a Harrier. And that was another of the roles of the Expeditionary One Squadron to get aircraft down there in short order. Six aircraft and eight pilots went out and made a presence known in Belize. Now, I believe that apart from a short break in sort of 77 time, there was a Harrier presence there until about 1992. Maybe somebody in the audience might correct that. But the Harrier did the business down there better than anything else. The only thing that could have done it. And that's another of these reasons that was seen in the MOD as being worth changing the policy. What we wanted from Kingston's Harrier GR5, as is described it here, we wanted it to maneuver like a hunter because the Harrier that we knew really couldn't go around the corner terribly well. You had to put down a little bit of flap to get any sensible maneuverability around the 400, 420 knots mark. You couldn't get 7G out of the airplane unless you really were cruel. We wanted it to carry six bombs, two air-to-air -air missiles, because we saw the need for self-defense, and guns and ammunition, with the same radius of action as the GR3, with just the tanks and three bombs. And uh, the diagram up on the top left there is what Kingston came up with. And that was going to be a retrofit program, which ran uh, after I left the job in 78. That was running as the, uh, the preferred solution. But in 78 to 81, Hawkers, of course, had been working already with the US Marines on improving their Harriers, but a new aeroplane. And this was the difference. We had no money for new aircraft. We had money for modifications. Hence the argument to modify our GR3s. Now, I think the slide shows exactly what uh, the case was. The unique capability and limited performance of the GR3. The Hawker's GR5 had much improved performance, but a much smaller production run, and a lot of research and development costs, particularly in the avionics package. The HSA and Mac Air proposal for the AV-8B had a much bigger production run and a collaborative project with the US Marines using the F-18, well, basically the F-18's avionics package, less the radar, although for the US Marines, they have sneaked the radar into the AV-8B+. And that is the program that finally, of course, went ahead for the RAF in 1981. It's a much slower airplane than the GR3, but with the benefit of hindsight and the wars that have taken place since then, the right solution in my book, no doubt. And there's the difference in the cockpits. The GR3 with its mechanical analog instrumentation, which we knew and loved, I think, and the GR9 with its all digital kit. Sadly, I never had the opportunity to fly the GR9, but uh, those who did loved it particularly the cockpit, because it was more bulbous across the canopy, wider access, and of course, very clever avionics in terms of the digital kit. However, spanner in the works, along comes Operation Corporate in 1982. So what do we need there? Well, Sea Harriers were going down on board Invincible, 
and Hermes. The RAF was tasked to supply six GR3s and eight pilots in support, initially as attrition replacements. So if the Navy lost aircraft defending the task force, the RAF's Harriers, which were equipped by, with sidewinders, were going to be able to help do the job. In the event, the Navy lost, they lost six aircraft in the Falklands campaign, but not to air-to-air -air combat. And the GR3s, of course, were used in the ground attack role for which they were trained. But it was a question of one squadron deploying to a part of the world that had never been planned for, never considered, that drove home the inherent versatility of the Harrier. The chaps deployed from St. Morgan via the odd stop-off, like Porto Santos, near Madeira, where there was a slight problem he had to divert into a decent runway. But by and large, uh, and apart from a stop in Dakar, I think, they got on board uh, Ascension in good order, and six aircraft were uh, transited, obviously vertical takeoff, or it didn't have to be a vertical takeoff, but airborne, and into the hover to land on the tail end of Atlantic Conveyor and subsequently were bagged. Now there's, in that lot there, camouflaged bags, there's six RAF airplanes and Sea Harriers. Some of the Sea Harriers were left clean because they wanted the capability to fly off the tail end of Atlantic Conveyor and show a presence should the ship be intercepted on its way south. Ultimately, one squadron went on board HMS Hermes and operated very successfully from there. Four aircraft were lost out of the six, and the slide on the bottom right showing a GR3 with large drop tanks, the 350-gallon ferry tank on the inboard station, and the 100-gallon empty fuel tank on the outboard. There was no fuel plumbing to the outboard pile, and what they were doing was getting airborne from Ascension, and after huge courage in my book, appeared just off the Falklands to land on board Hermes with nothing other than the Victor tankers that helped to get them down there. Uh, they jettisoned the big tanks before they came on board because you weren't supposed to land vertically with the big tanks on and they weren't going to be of any use down in the Falklands anyway. And so the aircraft landed on with the empty tanks on the outboard stations which were immediately put onto the inboard pile and to give you a standard GR3 ready to go to war package. And they operated alongside the Navy on board Hermes almost exclusively, although some aircraft did fly off what became SID's strip. Uh, the forward operating base just on the north side of the San Carlos landing site was a tin strip like we knew all these years before in Germany. And the training that was undertaken in Germany set up the operation down there, because I know SID personally, and he said it was all like they got out of the book all these years before. The airplane was flying with not the Stab rocket, but flying with the Navy's two-inch rocket. Very similar, not quite as accurate, but some sort of capability. The reason why that was undertaken was that the Sneb, apparently there was uh, electronic incompatibility between the ship's big radar systems and the electronics within the Sneb pod. We never got to the bottom of that, sadly, but that was the way that the, uh, the Sneb didn't go into battle. But the BL-755 did. And, of course, the, the stories of the Paras being marooned on the slope leading up into Goose Green Airfield um, by a bunch of Argentines on the top of the hill who'd nailed the CEO of two Para uh, and also were 
a threat to the advancing troops coming from the landing down through the, uh, the area to the north of Goose Green, the appearance of two pairs of Harriers, subsequent uh, sorties, which laid down rocket and BL-755 over Goose Green was enough to allow the CEO or the acting CEO of the Paris to demand and be offered a surrender. So something like 1,800 Argentines surrendered to this handful of uh, Paras coming up the hill, courtesy of some pretty nasty attacks by the BL-755, which spread shrapnel through all these chaps on the ground. So that's the story down there. Um, when the campaign finished in June of 1982, and I remember it well because we were in the headquarters at RFG when we were told the story, and it was my birthday, and also I'd just been told I was being promoted, so it all happened at the right time for me. But nonetheless, I didn't know what was going to happen shortly afterwards, but the airfield at Stanley is pretty, pretty beaten up, as you can see here. This was what it was like when the Harriers went ashore. It just happened to have snowed, and there, once again, are the ubiquitous 12x12s. Not cammed up this time, but there's the Harriers in amongst it, with the strip shown there. And that's how they operated for a period of time, until such time as 1453 flight was established with four GR3s as backup QRA aircraft with sidewinders on. And they were there for the two years. Certainly it covered the, the time that I was down there. And uh, Bob Lightfoot is in the audience somewhere with similar experience of uh, watching the boys go to work down there. I could argue that you could operate a Harrier anywhere, which was the subject really of my earlier slide, saying this aircraft has got real versatility, and that applies to this day. The next 20 years, there they are, in the boneyard at Tucson. And as Sir Donald Spears pointed out to me, the 100 million pounds that the MOD received for selling these aircraft to Marines is about the cost of an F-35B-1. This is a slide I used way back in 1968 when I was in the OR office giving birth to Tornado, or MRCA as it was then. Requirements can change overnight, but the hardware can't, a plea for flexibility. That applies just as much today as it did then, and I only hope that our successors in the F-35 program have followed that dictum. And certainly the force commander, who's an ex-Harrier man, um, Al Smith, sorry, um, Harv Smith, I uh, accepted that because I gave him this slide as part of a briefing on Tornado when I was up talking to the Aerosoc there about uh, this time last year. So there it is. That's the story of the GR3 and its predecessor, the GR1 and 1A. It was an aircraft that served as well. We were pawns on the great Cold War chessboard in that period of time, but after 19... 82, when the Harrier really went to war, it was a bit of a pretend war in Belize, but really went to war in the Falklands and acquitted itself superbly. I say that this was the finest aircraft that the Royal Air Force doesn't have today. I rest my case. Thank you. Thank you.